We're almost done with the book of Ephesians. I counted them up. I think we've got about four more sermons and then we will have completed this book. Uh, I know it's been a long time. I don't know how many years, but it's been a few years at the rate that I've been preaching. It's been a few years that we're going through it. But but, um, you can say you have studied in detail the whole book of Ephesians. And um, there's been a lot of time put into that, into the into the study of that. So you can say, hey, I've studied that book. I've got that one under my belt. Or at least you have some sense of knowledge and understanding about it. It may not be 100% accurate, and you can go back and study it on your own time, and maybe you find me an error, help correct me or something like that. But I believe that it has been diligently studied, and uh, I've done it. Done, done the best that I know how to do with it for, for the sake of myself and the congregation. So, uh, How many people in here experience spiritual battles on a day-to-day basis? Amen. I know I do. I know I do. It doesn't matter if it's just making myself take the time to read the Bible or find time to pray. Something always seems to get in my way. Uh, never mind trying to be kind to everyone I meet or... Um, not getting frustrated on a job or not losing my patience or my cool with my kids or my wife or my employees. The adversary seems to always throw something in the mix and uh, everywhere I turn I fight spiritual battles every single day. And also my own flesh desiring carnal things that shouldn't even be part of a Christian walk. You know, we battle with the flesh. Our flesh flesh desires things that shouldn't even be there. Serving Yahweh isn't easy. It isn't easy. And uh, the daily struggles of life are tough. It's tough for all of us, not just one person. Paul knows this, and he doesn't want us to go around in some kind of stupor thinking that it's going to be easy. It's not. He's, he spent the first part of Ephesians chapter 6 telling you that it's not going to be easy. It doesn't matter how much knowledge you have or how grounded you are in your faith. Not that those things aren't good and that they don't help. Sure, they do. But the daily struggles and spiritual warfare doesn't necessarily get any easier. As a matter of fact, the harder you serve Yahweh, the harder Satan works. The harder he works, and his cohorts work, and uh, they're going to try to try to stump you. You know, it's, they're going to make it hard. They're going to try to diminish your progress. So just because you have the ability to serve Yahweh, and just because you're a believer in His Son, it doesn't always mean that your practice will match your position. We may be saints. That doesn't mean that we act like one all the time. It doesn't make you any less of a child of the king. It doesn't make you any less of a son of Yahweh. It just makes you human. And humans, as humans, we're still going to struggle. Most likely we're going to do it daily. That's what I was talking about a second ago. However, we're given the gift of faith and we're given the gift of grace. And we certainly weren't given salvation so that we could lay down and not even try. We were given grace and given faith given a spirit of faith so that we might produce a lifestyle of works. Yes, I mean works. I'm talking about things you physically play out in your life. It's so important that we walk in obedience so that we might exhibit our faith. It's very, very important. We have to keep trying. We need to put on the full armor of the Almighty. Hey, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard, saints. But we already know that, and so does Paul here in the book of Ephesians. So we need the full armor. We need the full armor of Yahweh. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we started talking about the armor. And remember, Paul is in prison. He's looking at the Roman soldier. At least that's my take. I think that's what's going on there. And he's examining his armor. And he's using the armor as an analogy for the armor that we need to put on daily to stand against Satan. 
So when we went over the first part of the armor a couple of weeks ago, which was the belt of truth, and today we're going to go over the second part, which is the breastplate of righteousness. So let's get started. We'll read Ephesians 6, 10 through 17 again. We'll read this block of verses probably about four or five times before we're through with this, but you ought, to, you ought to remember it by the time we get done. So let's get started there in verse 10. It says, Finally be strengthened by Yahweh in his vast strength. Put on the full armor of the Almighty so that you can stand against the tactics of the devil. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of, the, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens, this is why you must take up the full armor of the Almighty so that you may be able to resist the evil and having in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you'll be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Almighty's word. So this is the full armor of Yahweh that's needed. All of these things will help to guard us and make us ready for whatever may come our way. Now all the resources that you have as a believer, you have the church, you have the Bible, your faith, your friends, family, church family, and all the knowledge you have, these things are all great, but it's just not enough to withstand the devil. It's not enough. Paul says that we're going to need a little armor. So remember in the last lesson we talked about the belt, the, belt, the belt of truth around your waist and we discovered that primarily what that means is to stand committed or ready with truthfulness and without hypocrisy. Okay? I mentioned that, that the phrase having your loins girded is a common phrase, a Hebrew phrase that would have been normal to the culture of the day and they would have known exactly what it meant as soon as Paul said, as soon as he said, have your loins girded, they know what that meant. It just means get ready. That's all it means. For centuries, the Hebrew people have indicated a form of readiness to move out or to prepare themselves when they hear this phrase. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, you can mark this down, go look at it later, but he says, gird up the loins of your mind ready for action. In other words, prepare your minds, being self-disciplined. I mentioned the children of Israel leaving Egypt and how Yahweh told Moses when they took took or partake in the Passover that he told them to do it in haste and with their loins girded. It was a common Hebrew thought or phrase and it simply just means it means get ready. And we discovered that Paul's saying the same thing to the believers here in Ephesus. People, this is war. This is war. If you don't want to ruin it, it's time to get serious about your faith. It's time to get committed. It's time to stand with your loins girded, the belt of truth around your waist, to be ready. And so I ask you that today. Are you committed? Are you ready to stand for Yahweh? Are you ready to fight this battle? We can't put on the next piece of armor until we get this piece right. It's very important that we get this nailed down. Because what's coming next goes on top of that tunic after the belt of truth. Remember we said first we have to tie up all those loose things in life. We have to get that stuff bundled up, get it tied up. The belt of truth goes around that loose tunic. The same way the tunic will flop and hang on everything in life without the belt is the same way that worldly things will hang on you. They'll hang you up if we don't get them out of the way. So is the belt fastened? Is it fastened? Are you ready? <clears throat> and is your tunic tied up? If so, then let's look at the next piece of armor that needs to be put on. Let's read verse 14 again. It says, 
Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest. And we'll just stop right there. So Paul's looking at this soldier, and I believe he's thinking, well, not only does he have his belt on, he's got everything out of the way, and he's all girded up, and not only is he committed to stand for battle and ready for movement, but also he has the most vital part of his body protected. Paul sees this breastplate. Now, I probably don't have to tell you what a breastplate looks like. I'm sure you've seen plenty of old medieval war movies and things like that. But I will, for the sake of some who might not know, the breastplate of armor could have been made of a lot of things. But most commonly, it was made of a foreign piece of metal to fit a soldier's upper body. Not only the front, but also the back. They could have also been made of chain mail. I don't know if you know what chain mail is, but it looks like a tightly woven fishnet. It's just real tight lengths of chain that's put together. It keeps anything from piercing. Anyway, it, it would have covered the soldier's torso from the neck down to the top of the thighs, and sometimes it might have even had attached to it shields that cover the shoulders. They'd usually be stamped with uh, some kind of emblem on the front of them, maybe an eagle or a lion, depending upon... Uh, what nation that you were in allegiance to. Now the breastplate of righteousness, in my opinion, is probably the most crucial piece of armor that a soldier would wear. And I'll tell you why I think that. It's obvious from a physical standpoint that all the vitals are behind the breastplate. Okay, The heart, the stomach, the lungs, liver, kidneys, organs, things like that. To say, I guess we could say the kill zone is behind that. But why is that so important that Paul mentions it in a spiritual sense? This would be the question. Well, I believe what Paul sees behind the breastplate are the two most important things to a Hebrew concept, Hebrew mind, a Jewish person of that day. One is the heart, and two, the stomach, or what they may call the bowels. Now, to the Jewish people, these two organs have extreme significance. I talked about this a little bit back in Ephesians 1. Jerry makes comments about the bowels a lot of times, but I talked about it back in Ephesians 1, but I'll explain it again. So symbolically, to the Jewish person, the heart represented the mind. The Bible says, as a man thinketh in his what? In his heart, so is he. Okay? Out of the heart proceedeth evil thoughts. See, to a Hebrew, this is metaphorical. But the heart represented the intellect of a person. The heart correlates to the mind. And the Bible's represented, again, metaphorically, a person's emotions or feelings. We see the Bible talk about the bowels of compassion. We, we see that language there. Or shutting up the bowels of love. This is because where we feel emotion is in our bowels. Now that might sound funny, but I'm sure that you've heard people say that I'm so nervous that my stomach hurts. That's the way I used to feel every time I would get up here and preach. I feel People say you got butterflies in your stomach. Well, that's, those are nerves. We feel it in our guts, okay? Or when someone gets upset, they might say, I'm so upset that I'm sick to my stomach. I'm sick to my stomach. That's because that's where we feel emotion from or where emotion presents itself in our bodies. And to the Jewish people, they use these types of metaphors to explain themselves. So if we transfer, transfer these metaphors to our imagery of the soldier's army, um, armor, they, then maybe we can see why the breastplate is so important for spiritual warfare. The last thing we want Satan to get a hold of is our mind and our thinking or our feelings and our emotions. Paul warns us about false doctrines and false information. Okay, Well, that's our mind that does that. Or metaphorically, our heart. Okay, And we also warn, or are warned about our feelings and the idea of lust and other sin desires. 
Satan wants to elicit evil responses, and he tries to twist and pervert your affections. Metaphorically, he is attacking your bowels and your emotions and your heart and your thoughts. Okay? I hope you see this. I hope you get the picture I'm trying to paint for you about our body and, and the processes there and the mindset of you know, Hebrew thought. So with the armor of the breastplate, if we can protect our heart and our stomachs, which is our mind and our feelings, then we can become practically impregnate, impregnable to Satan and his attacks. So back to the righteousness part. We have examined the armor, and we, have under, and we understand that it's protecting the vital organs or the kill zone, and why that is so important metaphorically. But Paul calls it the breastplate of righteousness. What do you think he means? What kind of righteousness is he talking about? Again, I think this is the most important piece physically, but also I believe is the most important piece spiritually as well. And let me explain. The definition of righteousness is, is the quality or state of being morally correct or justifiable. It is synonymous with the words virtuous and uprightness, good morality, obedience to the law, virtuous, blameless, upright living. That is what righteousness is. And if there is no righteousness in your life, then there's probably no commitment. Your tunic's probably not girded up. If you don't have a righteous life, you certainly won't have the shield of faith. You probably won't have the helmet of salvation. And you surely couldn't wield the sword of the Spirit, seeing how it's the Spirit that produces righteousness within you. You'll be armorless, not covered in armor. Utterly defeated for sure. Righteousness is only right living with Yahweh. That's all it is. It's not that complex. It's not a big definition. It's just right living with Yahweh. But when you get committed to Yahweh, then it seems to me that righteousness automatically follows. Automatically. Let me give you an example of this. When I wake up in the morning, I like to start my day with a prayer. Praying first. I start my day by brushing my teeth. That's the first thing I do. I don't even want to talk to Yahweh with a filthy mouth. That's the first place I go is to brush my teeth. But as soon as I brush my teeth, I get in the shower, and that's where I pray. I've mentioned that several times, but I pray in the shower. That's the first thing I do. And right after that, I go up to my barn. I've got a desk in my barn, and I read my Bible. That's what I do before I do anything else, before I make a phone call or before I uh, pet the dog or whatever. I go up to my barn, and I, and I read my Bible. That's just the way I start my day. I like to do that, and I try to do this first thing, so I'm, com- I'm, I try to do it first thing, and uh, so that I start my day with righteousness. I try to start it off the right way. I think that it helps gear my day towards, or at least start it in the right direction, with the hopes that the rest of my day will follow the direction I started that morning. Not saying that I don't fall or forget a piece of the armor from time to time, not saying that I don't lose a battle with Satan, from time to time, but I usually try to start my day that way anyway. Because when I when I don't do this, and my mind is on other things, worldly things, making money, uh, riding horses, and playing with chickens, those are some of my hobbies. So uh, when I get when I get my mind started on those kind of things, my day follows those things, and I'll go through the whole day. And a lot of times, I'll never even stop to pray because I wasn't committed that morning to serve Yahweh. The first thing in my mind that morning was not a commitment to serve Yahweh and to start my day the way that it should have been started. So it's important to commit. It's important to try your best, to walk righteously, spiritually, day in and day out. 
Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 18, it says, But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Until the full day. Try to make your path a righteous one that shines brighter and brighter until the full day towards more righteousness for Yahweh. Be committed to Yahweh and let your righteousness shine for Him. Now let me clarify righteousness and walking in it because I don't want anyone to confuse this practical righteousness that we should all practice that I'm referring to for self-righteousness. Okay, There's a lot of different righteousnesses. and uh, So let me clarify. Let's talk about this one for a few minutes. What is self-righteousness? Self-righteousness is a thought that you're good enough on your own to gain favor or merit with Yahweh, at least as it pertains to salvation. And yes, believe it or not, people believe that they can actually achieve a standard of righteousness that is good enough to satisfy the Creator that way. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were some of these people. They thought that they could make it into the kingdom of Yahweh, even though in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, the Messiah reminds them, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we should learn two things from this. Number one, there is no self-righteousness good enough to obtain salvation. Not salvistically, okay? You cannot self-righteously work your way into salvation. The Pharisees were probably very righteous in their observation of Yahweh's command. Following the letter to a T, to the exact letter, okay? It seems to me that Yeshua holds them to a pretty high standard or pretty high, high mark when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs. In other words, theirs is great, but unless yours goes further than that, it's no good. And in concept and thought right there, he's saying it's not good enough, it'll never be good enough. It's because it's the wrong righteousness. It's the wrong kind of righteousness. However, it seems that he held them to a high regard, that they were righteous men. He considered them righteous, okay? To some degree. Sure. And Paul himself was a Pharisee. Paul was a Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Let's turn to Philippians 3 real quick. If you got your Bible, we'll be there for a second. So turn to Philippians 3. You don't have far to go. And uh, I want to talk about that. See, Paul at one time had confidence in his own righteousness. And I believe he was corrected. And I believe that he repented of it. And we'll see here. But we'll see that here. But at one time he felt like the, the Pharisees did and was loaded with self righteousness. If you turn to Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to start in, uh, let's see, let's start in verse um, 1, I guess I'll start in verse 1, read through 11. It says, finally my brothers rejoiced in, rejoiced in the Lord to, finally my brothers rejoiced in the Lord to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. Watch out for dogs, watch out for evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of the Almighty, boast in Christ the Messiah, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I had, I once had confidence in the flesh too. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal persecuting the church and as to righteousness that is in the law blameless but everything that was a gain to me I've considered it to be a loss because of 
the Messiah. More than that, I also considered everything to be a loss in view of surpassing value of knowing the Messiah, Yeshua, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from the Almighty based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. We can stop there. Can you see Paul's self-righteousness here previously? He says, I once had confidence in the flesh too. In other words, at one time I believed I could make it into Yahweh's kingdom based on who I am and the works that I do. Paul's saying, if you want to see someone who is self-righteous, take a look up here. Look at me. I can probably outdo anyone in here. He was circumcised the eighth day. That wasn't his command to keep, but his parents kept it, which worked in his favor. Eighth day he was circumcised. That's what we're supposed to do. He got that part nailed down right. He says he was born of the nation of Israel. He had the lineage. He had the background. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, there's, there's something to that. We'll get into that in a minute. He was a Hebrew born of Hebrews. Paul was of noble birth. You might say not only a true Israelite. He was born of Hebrew descent. Not, not only mother, but also father. He was, a, he was a purebred Israelite. Purebred Hebrew. You might wonder what's so special about Benjamin. Well, Benjamin was the, the last child to be born of Jacob. Right? He was born of the loved woman, Rachel. Benjamin was a very special tribe. In 1 Kings chapter 12, it was through the offspring of Benjamin that Israel and Judah was reconciled after the turmoil that was going on and the separation between the two tribes. Solomon kind of caused a lot of that, I guess. It was Benjamin and Judah who started the rebuilding of the temple after their return from exile. And Ezra chapter 4 and verse 1. Ezra chapter 4 and verse 1. So Benjamin was important. And Paul knows it. And he says, hey, look. I was high bred. I have the pedigree, folks. He goes on to say that as to the law, he was a Pharisee. Yeah. Once again, recognizing that Pharisees were of, were of great reputation among, amongst Judaism. Everybody knew that they were educated in the law. They were smart. You know, they were, at least to the eye, they walked around blameless. Okay? Even Paul knew that. And everybody, everybody around there would have knew that Paul was somebody you know, amongst his contemporaries. Then he says, as to the zeal, he persecuted the church, which it was a was a big deal to them. He was so zealous for the law that he went as far as destroying or trying to destroy the church, thinking, of course, that he was doing right. He thought that he was doing Yahweh a favor. You all remember what happened to Stephen? Stephen was stoned to death, okay? But Paul held the cloak while everybody stoned him, thinking that he was doing what was right. Paul considered himself righteous in that act and he thought he was doing Yahweh a favor. He goes on in verse 6 and he says, as to the righteousness of the law, he said, I was blameless. Blameless. That's incredible. How many people in here can say they're blameless according to the law? Yeah, I didn't th- and not me. I, d- I wouldn't think that anybody in here would say that or should say that. Actually, I hope that nobody would be so bold as to make that statement. We all know that that is the goal that we work towards is to be blameless towards the law. But we also know that we have broken it and we probably won't make it. And so uh, 
That's kind of arrogant to say. However, in Paul's eyes, he had walked in the ways of Yahweh. And as it pertains to the legal code of Yahweh, he probably did. He probably was very blameless. Okay? But he was just missing a couple things, and Paul recognizes that he was missing them, and he lets us know that too. Because in verse 7 he says, But everything that was a gain for me, as this highly decorated stuff and all that I just spoke about, he says, I have considered it to be a loss because of Christ. And more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in our Lord. The proper righteousness that we should seek from Yahweh and is based on faith in Christ. That's the, that's the proper righteousness. And that pedigree and all that obedience and all that circumcision and all that zeal for the church and all that self-righteous stuff for Paul, it was nothing. He said he counts it as dung. It was the same as manure. Was Paul righteous? Sure he was. Was he an Israelite or of Israelite descent? Sure he was. Was he zealous for Yahweh? Sure he was. Was he a believer and born again into the family of Yahweh? For sure he was not. He was not. He had all that going for him, but he didn't have the finality going for him. He was never going to make it. Never going to make it. Without Yahweh's interference, without Yahweh's supernatural work right there, Paul wouldn't have made it. Folks, Paul was full of self-righteousness. He thought his pedigree and his deeds were what it took to share in an eternal kingdom with Yahweh, but he was wrong. Self-righteousness is no good really in any feat and especially when it comes to salvation it won't help you a bit self-righteousness is not the righteousness that Paul is talking about when he says put on the breastplate of righteousness he's not talking about your deeds he may be talking about your deeds but not what you think of yourself not your self-righteousness what Paul needed was imputed righteousness in order to be saved that's what Paul needed this is the second kind of righteousness I want to talk to you about today we don't need self-righteousness to be saved. We need imputed righteousness. You might ask, what does that mean? And I'll explain it. When you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in Christ when you believe, you are sealed with the promise Holy Spirit. That's Ephesians 1.13. That has become my favorite verse. At that time, the righteousness of Yeshua is imputed to you at that time. Yahweh clothes you in the righteousness of Christ and in the holiness that camouflages you and makes you appear as if, as if you are his only begotten son. And from that moment on, you're not viewed in your filth, but rather you're viewed in the holiness of Yahweh's son. Your nasty nature is covered and only holiness is beheld by Yahweh. That's great, isn't it? Hallelujah. Are you just thankful, thankful for that? I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. Praise Yahweh for his grace and his faith. Amen. Praise Yahweh for imputed righteousness. Paul recognizes he has been given imputed righteousness. And he says in Philippians 3, he says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And now that I have already reached a goal or am already mature, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. I pursue as my goal the prize promise of Yahweh. He hadn't taken hold of it. He continues on. He pursues. He presses on. 
Folks, in summary, what Paul's saying here is that even though I've already had the gift of salvation, I still move ahead. I still keep going. See, imputed righteousness is what makes practical righteousness or imparted righteousness. That's what, that's what the Puritans called it, imparted righteousness. Yeah. But imputed righteousness is what makes that obtainable. You can't obtain practical righteousness without imputed righteousness. We cannot possibly be what he desires for us to be unless he first gives us the ability to do so. Mm-hmm. Yahweh acts first and then we're to act. Yahweh has already done everything he needed to do to make you who you need to be. Now it's your turn to act. When Yahweh saved you, you were given the righteousness of Yeshua. That's imputed righteousness. And that's good for all eternity. That righteousness is good. However, for you to ward off Satan, you must apply righteousness every day, righteous everyday principles to your daily lives. Just because you're in Christ doesn't mean that your flesh is. Your position may be secure, but your practice may not prove it. Paul says, I've been given the righteousness of Christ, but that doesn't mean that I've obtained. That doesn't mean that I've arrived. I'm not done. I've got to keep going. No, I must work out my salvation so that I can accomplish what Yahweh wills to do in my life. In other words, showcase what Yahweh has done for you by letting your outside works or outward works prove who you are on the inside. If you're a good tree, a good tree produces good fruit. Imputed righteousness brings forth practical righteousness, a righteousness that we put to use. This is the kind of righteousness that I believe Paul is referring to when he talks about the breastplate. He's talking about a practical righteousness, a daily righteousness of moment-to-moment choices. This is donning the breastplate. This is what putting on the breastplate means. And folks, I believe this may be the hardest thing that any of us have to do. We get so laxed in our confidence of our salvation because of the imputed righteousness that we just get complacent. And before you know it, our belt's loose and our tunic is flopping. There's an age-old argument against a bunch of different sects within Christianity and people. some people call it once saved, always saved, things like that. Uh, I think I think a lot of people take that mentality and once saved, always saved. I believe that once you're saved, you're always saved. I believe Yahweh doesn't make a mistake. I believe if you're you were saved from the foundation of the world, you'll be saved at the end. He doesn't he doesn't change his mind. I believe that works. However, I believe a lot of those people that believe that they walked down to an altar altar and prayed a prayer, they weren't really they weren't really ever saved to start with. They just went through the emotions of praying prayers. And so uh so so in in some sense I believe that's heretical. Okay. However, when Yahweh saves a person, there's never an act that doesn't follow it. There's always a lifestyle that follows it. When Yahweh works, it's not inferior. It's not, it's not that it, it doesn't take hold or that it doesn't take root. When Yahweh works, something starts to grow. When Yahweh plants a tree, it starts to produce fruit. If you want to see your fruit, the fruit that I'm talking about is practical righteousness. When, when, you, when your fruit starts to grow, there's your practical righteousness. It's important that we exhibit what Yahweh has planted within us. Yes. That's the shield of faith. That's what I'm talking about today. Paul says, I've been given the righteousness of Christ, but that doesn't mean I've obtained it. He's got to keep on. He's got to press forward. He's got to keep on going. A daily righteous life. We make moment-to-moment choices. We have to do that as we go on through life. Do you know who suffers when you don't practice a practice a practical righteous life? You do. 
You do. You suffer. Your kids suffer. Your church suffers. Your neighbor suffers. Your family, your wife, your co-workers. And the list goes on and on and on. Everybody around you suffers when you don't practice righteousness. You know what else suffers? Your joy suffers. Your joy suffers. Joy dissipates without righteousness. You can, you can prove this to yourself. Get up and don't live a righteous life. And I guarantee you'll be miserable all day long. You can't find nothing happy about you. You can't find nothing going good. It won't work. It won't work. David wrote in Psalms 51 after his sin with Bathsheba. And in that psalm, he said, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Within that psalm. You know why? His unrighteousness in sin with Bathsheba had stripped away his joy. That's what was wrong with David. All throughout David's whole life, you you hear about kind of about how happy he is. I mean, he's running from his enemies and things like that, but he's still kind of up. He's kind of upbeat about Yahweh all the time. Seems that way. He's dancing, things like that. <clears throat> David was still saved right here, but he'd lost his joy. He says, "Restore to me the joy of my salvation." The salvation hadn't lost, hadn't left. He said, "Restore to me that joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation." As long as David did what was right, he was happy. Well, when he failed to do so, his joy was gone. In a matter of practical righteousness. If you want Yahweh to give you joy, then walk every day in righteousness with Yahweh. Folks, we're overwhelmed in everyday life. We're drowning in a sea of immorality. Humanism, materialism, etc., etc. So much that it's almost impossible to let your light shine. It's hard to live. It's hard to live in, in this day and time with this much going on in the world and to show forth goodness. Righteous, holy, wholesome living. It's hard to do that. But it's a must that we shield ourselves from these things. We must put on the breastplate to shield us. Righteousness is your breastplate. Protect your thoughts, your heart, and your emotions, your bowels from the sin, this sin-infested world. Because not only will it cause you to lose your joy, you'll also lose your credibility amongst people. It's a, it's a fact that when people see how you act, they know who you really are. That's right. They know who you really are. And listen to me, hear that when I say it. <clears throat> when people see how you act outwardly and how you conduct yourself, they know who you are. They know exactly what you're all about. If you want people to believe you're a Christian, let your righteousness prove that you're one. Exhibit your heart. Showcase your heart and your mind, your bowels and your emotions. Your imputed and practical righteousness. Showcase it. Let your light shine. You'll lose your joy if you don't. And another thing that you'll lose are your blessings. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and, verse 20, and chapter 29, the blessings and the curses chapter. These are all incumbent upon your actions. Yahweh says, if you do this, I'll do that. And if you do this, I'll do that. They're incumbent upon your action. All right? He promises to bless you beyond all measure if you're obedient. But he promises to curse you beyond all right. measure if you're disobedient. And one more thing that you're going to lose is your faithfulness. If you lose your, lose your righteousness, you'll lose your faithfulness. If you don't put on the breastplate of righteousness daily, you will slowly but surely fade. If your breastplate is not protecting you, and the more you let your righteousness down, the more Satan will pick you apart arrow by arrow right into the kill zone until you have no faith left. You'll stop serving Yahweh. You'll stop serving the church. You'll stop reading the Bible. You'll stop going to church. And eventually, you may not even believe at all. Righteousness is a must, and protecting it is a must when it comes to the armor. Listen, people, we're not supposed to be part of the world. No matter how much we're in it, we're not supposed to be part of it. 
We're not, to, we're not to look like it. We're not to act like it. We're not to feel like it. We're supposed to be separate. Don't let the lust of the world cause you not to live righteously. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Protect yourself and walk in his ways. In closing, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 13, it says, These all died in faith without receiving the promises, but they saw them, meaning the promises, from a distance. They greeted them, and they confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Brothers and sisters, sisters, if we are people of faith, then we believe that the promises are ours, just like they did. Yahweh's already ordained our finality in his kingdom with him, but how in the world would anybody ever know it or listen to our witness if we don't look any different than the world or the rest of the people on earth? The heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 realized that they were just temporary residents here. They said, this is not our home. We don't, we're not like these people. We're just temporary residents here. That needs to be our mindset. We need to look different because we're righteous. Righteousness will automatically separate you. That's what holiness means is separation. If you live a holy, righteous life, you will automatically look different than the man next to you. You don't have any choice. The heroes of faith right here in Hebrews 11, they understood that. They said, this is not our home. We don't belong here. That's what they mean by that. We're not part of this. We're ready for our eternal home. That's what's most important. So when you live here, when you walk around here, you should look different. You should you should act different. People should think of you as weird a little bit. I'm not saying you got to just make everybody mad or anything, but you ought to be a little bit weird. That's right. People look at you and say, man, there's something different about that guy. He's different than I am. I don't have what he has. And what they should do is desire what you have because you should be peaceable and kind and loving and gentle and meek, merciful. That's what you should be. That's right. People should desire that. <clears throat> we're just temporary residents here also let's be like them not conform to the world let's put on our protective breastplate to live righteous for a righteous life for Yahweh let's let our light shine don't take the gift of imputed righteousness of our Messiah for granted and not showcase our thankfulness and gratitude mm-hmm. by not walking it out through practical everyday faith yielding joy yielding, blessing yielding righteousness for Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the belt of truth. Stand and be committed and walk in the ways of Yahweh. Amen. Let's pray and then somebody can take testimony. <clears throat> Yahweh Father, I thank you for this day and I thank you for the opportunity to stand up here and to, um, to share your word with people that are probably much smarter than I am, Father. I'm thankful that you've given me the opportunity to do that. And I just pray that your word didn't go out uh, unheard. Or that it, I pray that it would pierce the hearts of hearts of people and that we'll learn and we'll grow. And, Father, that we'll be strengthened by your encouragement and by the direction that you give us through the mouth of your servants. Father, we love you today. And I'm thankful for your only begotten Son. Father, I ask this in your Holy Son's name. Amen. Amen.